We the jury find the defendant, John Ortiz Peel, guilty of first degree premeditated murder. <laughs> Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from John Kehoe, an inmate at the Michigan Department of Corrections, Muskegon Correctional Facility. From a 7 by 10 foot cell of a Michigan prison, I am John Ortiz Kehoe. And welcome to Creating a Cannibal. Creating a Cannibal is a podcast dedicated to exposing the truth behind the wrongful conviction that left me labeled as a monster and sent me to die in prison. Now, for the first time, you are about to hear the true story of what happened inside and outside of the courtroom. I'll reveal the names of witnesses who took the stand and tell you what they said. You'll find out who was actually involved and learn about the role they played in framing me for a crime I didn't commit. For 20 years, I was silenced by the concrete walls and razor wire that surrounds me. And for 20 years, the media ran with a one-sided version of this case, a version that is full of distorted evidence and outright lies. They gave me sensational headlines, but me, I'm giving you the truth. For the first time since December of 1993, I spoke openly about what happened the night Rose died. I didn't testify because I wanted to. I testified because innocent people were being dragged into this mess by an overzealous prosecutor who didn't care about whose lives he ruined as long as he got a conviction and gained some personal publicity. So I took the witness stand and I confessed to every part of the crime I committed. But my time on the stand was far from over because after I finished giving my testimony, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey was allowed to proceed with his cross-examination. And the prosecutor's job was to trick the jury into believing that nothing I said was true. This is Creating a Cannibal, Episode 11, Cross and Rebuttal. John Ortiz Kehoe was still on the witness stand. Defense attorney Jerome Savota concluded his direct examination and the prosecution was given the opportunity to question John. During his cross-examination, assistant prosecutor Kelsey asked John why he ran to Mexico instead of turning himself in and cooperating with the police. John acknowledged that he ran, and although he knew a warrant was issued for his arrest, John believed he was being charged as an accessory for helping Bill Brown cover up Ms. Larner's death. John never knew he was being blamed for Ms. Larner's murder until the day he was arrested. John also admitted that he was deeply involved in the illicit business of trafficking marijuana from Mexico to the United States and weeks before the warrant for his arrest was issued. Many of his criminal associates were indicted on federal drug trafficking charges. John thought he would soon be indicted as well and his marijuana suppliers wanted him to come to Mexico. John further told the jury that he didn't trust the police and when he was arrested, John informed his lawyer that he would not give up any of his drug connections or cooperate with the prosecutor and testify against Bill Brown. Assistant Prosecutor John Kelsey questioned John about the details of his testimony, specifically whether he went to a Myers department store a second time where Bill Brown claimed that John purchased the items used to kill Ms. Larner. John responded by stating that there was no second trip to Myers and the nearest Myers department store is located over 20 miles away from Albion. Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey then asked John if he remembered what time it 
was when he left Ms. Larner and Bill Brown alone and went to McDonald's to get something to eat. John said he could not remember a specific time but he assumed it was sometime in the afternoon. Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey asked if it was around 2 p.m. John answered the question by again stating that it was sometime in the afternoon. Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey asked John if he remembered seeing anyone he knew while he was at McDonald's eating. John remembered seeing David Frost but said he did not talk to him. The prosecutor then questioned John about the tattoo tear located beneath his left eye. Doesn't it mean you killed? Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey asked. John told the jury it memorialized the loss of his stillborn son. It doesn't mean you killed someone. The prosecutor shot back making an assertion rather than asking a question. Before John was allowed to step down from the witness stand, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey once again used a slide projector to cast the giant mugshot of John onto the wall. Is that what you looked like in 93? The prosecutor asked. John responded firmly. No, that picture is not from 93. When John was excused from the witness stand, it was time for the defense to strengthen its case by presenting witnesses to support John's testimony. The entire courtroom was stunned however, when defense attorney Sabota told the court that he only had one witness to show. John's defense attorney chose to recall Bill Brown's girlfriend, Carla Cummins. Carla Cummins testified that her boyfriend and the father of her daughter Bill Brown told her that he had killed people, cut them up and eaten their bodies. Carla Cummins said Bill Brown had assaulted her numerous times and threatened to kill her with a pair of scissors. Carla Cummins also told the jury that she once asked Bill Brown to tell her and her friends how he killed Rose Larner. Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey defended Bill Brown's behavior by telling the jury that Bill Brown may have assaulted Carla Cummins and he may have also threatened to kill her many times but he never did actually kill her, adding, She's still here, isn't she? John and his family urged defense attorney Jerome Sabota to call numerous witnesses who would corroborate John's testimony and dispute Bill Brown's allegations. John and his family even gave attorney Jerome Sabota the names of people to interview and provided the attorney with information about physical evidence that would be beneficial to John's defense. Attorney Jerome Sabota however ignored their suggestions and insisted that no witness was the best witness. In response to John's testimony about seeing David Frost working at McDonald's on the day of Ms. Larner's death, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey called David Frost to the witness stand as a re-battle witness. David Frost testified that he had no recollection of seeing John driving his brother's truck through the McDonald's drive-thru. David Frost also stated that he did not remember if he even worked three years earlier on the day in question. Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey presented a McDonald's work schedule from December of 1993. The schedule proved that David Frost did indeed work on the day that John said he saw Mr. Frost at McDonald's. However, the schedule also indicated that David Frost did not start his shift until 5 p.m. In addition to David Frost, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey attempted to call John's brother to the witness stand. The prosecutor promised to grant John's brother full immunity from prosecution in exchange for his testimony. With full immunity, John's brother would not be able to assert his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. According to Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey, during the videotaped interview with Detective Don Brooks, John's brother gave several statements blaming John for the death of Ms. Larner. The prosecutor also claimed that John's brother confessed that he drove his mother's car back to the Albion house and retrieved his truck. Defense attorney Jerome Sabota was given a six-paragraph summary of Detective Don Brooks' alleged two-hour interview of John's brother. The report was made two months after Detective Don Brooks claimed the interview took place. In the report, Detective Brooks claims that John's brother gave extremely vague details about what happened. The report specifically states that when John's brother drove to the house in Albion in order to exchange the vehicles, John 
Jerome's brother believed he went to the house alone. Attorney Jerome Sabota told Judge Miller that the prosecution was violating John's constitutional rights by withholding the videotaped confession if they truly had a videotaped confession. When Attorney Sabota demanded that he be given a copy of the video, Detective Don Brooks told Attorney Jerome Sabota there was a malfunction with the video equipment and the tape was no good. With so many holes in Detective Don Brooks' story about the supposed videotaped confession, like why wasn't John's brother arrested after the alleged confession? Defense attorney Jerome Sabota was eager to question John's brother on the witness stand. Attorney Jerome Sabota wanted to know if John's brother went to the house in Albion without John knowing, and if he did go to the house, did he go there alone or was he accompanied by another person? Shockingly, it has only been recently revealed that John's brother did in fact go to the house in Albion after John and Bill Brown boarded a bus bound for Florida nearly one week after Ms. Larner's death. And the man who accompanied John's brother to the house was none other than Fred Tripp. One key question remains however, did Detective Don Brooks choose not to reveal Fred Tripp's participation in the crime in order to protect his confidential informant, the same crime that sent John's brother to prison for seven years? Defense attorney Jerome Sabota told Judge Miller that if John's brother was called to the witness stand he would be questioning him about his close friendship with Fred Tripp and their marijuana trafficking business. Because assistant prosecutor Kelsey could not grant John's brother immunity from prosecution from any federal crimes he committed, John's brother was allowed to assert his Fifth Amendment right and did not testify. And with the issue settled by Judge Miller, no further witnesses would be called to the stand. The stage was now set for both sides to present their closing arguments to the jury. I stepped down from the witness stand, feeling confident the jury could see that the prosecutor was trying to deceive them. He took his shot and attempted to poke holes in my testimony, not by asking questions, but by making statements about the evidence that were blatantly wrong. I had no idea that he was just priming the jury for the lies he was planting in their minds the next day during his closing argument. But first, my lawyer would deliver his closing argument, and he would be asking each juror to carefully consider the actual facts of the case before deciding who the real killer was. Next time, in episode 12, the boat is closed. Thank you for listening to Creating a Cannibal, an Emeron production. Make sure you follow me on social media and check out my blog for a more in-depth look at how I was framed. Creating a Cannibal is a podcast produced under Emeron Productions. Gerardo G. Gonzalez Jr., Robert D. Tab, and Lucas Sampson are editorial advisors. Emerald Santos, our executive producer and the one who mixed our show. Our theme music are Ride the Mighty High composed by John Ortiz Quijo himself and Nothing Doing composed by Ari De Niro. Our website is creatingacannibal.wordpress.com. Special thanks to Mr. John Ortiz Quijo for sharing his side of story. Also visit John's blog website where you can see documents from the case, johnortiz-quijo.blogspot.com.